Father in heaven, you've entrusted an everlasting gospel to us humanity, the ones that ruined your creation. And yet you've entrusted us with a sacred trust to share an experience, a new life with you. And today we want to know what that is, more deeply, more firmly, more profoundly and real in our life. So may you send your Holy Spirit for the opportunity to speak freely to the hearts of your people. That it not be I, but Christ that is seen, heard, lifted up, that all would be drawn to thee. Is my humble prayer I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Revelation, God has given us a sacred, sacred appeal. And that appeal was so important that he sent angels to come and share the message with his servant John. John on the Isle of Patmos, after being failed to being boiled alive in a cauldron of boiling oil, there is a little feedback. All right. John, when he understood that God had still work for him to do and that the boiling oil was not going to be the end of his fate, Satan shipped him off to an isle called Patmos. And yet while he was lonely by himself there, he was really not lonely. In fact, we're told while he was there on the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, The Spirit of the Lord came and shared with him and began revealing to him the book of Revelation, of which things that will shortly come to pass. And it says, He sent and signified it by his servant unto his angel, by his angel unto his servant John. And the question has been asked, how how much longer? Shortly come to pass. You know, there's a blessed hope in the book of Revelation chapter 14. It's broken up into three sections. Verses 1 through 5 talks about a special people. Verses 6 through 12 talks about a special messages. And verses 13 to 20 talk about special event. And I'm going to start with the event. The Bible picks up in verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may what? Rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one that sat like unto, who was it? The Son of Man. When we are talking about a white cloud and the Son of Man coming on this white cloud, what is that event that is beginning to be described here? Second coming of Jesus Christ, the blessed hope. And it says, having in his hand, in his head, a golden crown, and in his hand a what? Sharp sickle. What is a sickle used for? Harvesting. Yes, in general, to cut. To cut down whether it be weeds or grain, tares or wheat. The same sickle cuts them both. 
yet they are separated. And God sends his own angel to do the cutting and the separating. The Bible goes on and says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the the cloud one like unto the Son of Man, having in his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is what? There will become a time very soon where God will make the declaration that the harvest is ripe. It's ready. Who makes the declaration? Christ does. And he sends his angel with the sickle to cut the harvest. Verse 16. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So here you have those that were reaped But it says in the beginning of this verses, it says in verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are who? The dead which die in the Lord. So in this first reaping, we are talking about the people of God, those that have been faithful to Jesus in surrendering all to Him to let Him be Lord in their life. They are the ones that are reaped in this first harvest to be set aside, to be taken in the second coming of Christ. Verse 17, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also having a what? So here's another sickle, another angel, and he's going to do another reaping. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and do what? Gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. Notice the clusters of where? The clusters of the vine of the earth. These are not heavenly clusters. Looks what happens with these clusters. For her grapes are what? Fully ripe. There's a different ripeness that has come. And it's not a ripeness of righteousness. And we see that in the context. It says, And the angel thrust in a sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it where? The great winepress into the what? So we're looking at a different reaping. Of which this reaping is identified under the wrath of God. And it says, And the winepress was trodden where? This is a very important phrase. In the book of Hebrews 13, it talks about that Christ died without the camp. Outside of Jerusalem. There was a red heifer that was offered in the sanctuary service. That that which was the one sacrifice offered out of the sanctuary. It was outside the camp. And it was symbolic. Christ, when he died on Calvary, Calvary was outside of The camp, outside of the city, representing those that will be outside of the new Jerusalem that chose not to accept the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. They chose to bear their own sin instead of allowing Christ to be their sin bearer. 
This event is the other reaping. And it says, And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles. Now where are the bridles? In the mouth. Do you realize that's the highest point of a horse besides his ears? You're coming up to almost drown the horse itself. And it said, by the space of the thousand and six hundred furlongs. Here's the event, the second coming of Christ. It's interesting because something had to take place in order for this distinct event to begin to be proclaimed with the distinct voice of the second coming of Jesus. And Paul makes mention of this. Turn your Bible to the book of Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And many in Paul's day were sharing that Christ was coming. In fact, beginning at verse verse 1, it says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the topic that he's talking about? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that that day... That the day of Christ is at hand. Paul says very distinctly, look, I don't want you to be deceived by those that are trying to tell you today that the coming of the Lord is near at this time period. It's not so. And he goes on and explains why. What has to happen before that is a reality. He says in verse 3, let no man do what? Deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there be a what? There's going to be a falling away first. A falling away first. And what else? And that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Well, tell me more about this man of perdition, the son of perdition. He's going to oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God. Or that is worshipped. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is what? That he is God. Remember ye not, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. It's like, look, pay attention. And he says, for you, and now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his times. Look, that man of sin is going to be revealed in his time. Verse 7 says, For the mystery of iniquity, what is it doing already? Even in Paul's day, the mystery of iniquity was already working in the hearts of man. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. This man of sin, this spirit of exalting of self, of putting self even in the position of God as the authority of God, wanting to lead out and be in charge like God, showing himself that he is God. It is an issue of what? Worship. 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 We also say it was an issue of control. 
What humanity wants more than anything else, this is just our nature, is we want to be what? We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. This is the sum of the great controversy. This is the simple definition of the mystery of iniquity. How God created man in his image, and now man wants to be what? Wants to be in charge of himself. That is the mystery of iniquity. There's no common sense rationale that makes any good explanation to justify or rationalize that type of thinking. If there was, it would cease to be a mystery. Exactly. So this mystery of iniquity where man is putting himself in the place of God to control himself and to control others, this is the whole controversy here on earth. And each person has to settle it between you and your maker. And there will be, as it has been identified here in the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul said there is going to be a distinct entity identified as the man of who? Man of sin, the son of perdition, that is going to exalt himself above all that is called God, showing himself that he is sitting in the temple of God. This spirit and this attitude is the mystery of iniquity. It's the mystery of the spirit of the papacy. And God clearly tells this foretold in prophecy in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12. And all that Daniel wrote, and all that was to be revealed for us in these last days. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 says, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even till when? The time of the end. I want you to remember that phrase, the time of what? The time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. When was the time of the end? When did it begin? Somebody, I read your lips. What were we just talking about in 2 Thessalonians? What must be revealed before the distinct message of the second coming of Christ should be proclaimed? The son of perdition, the man of sin. When did the man of sin come to be a deadly wound being inflicted upon that power? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping and assuming. Would you please forgive me? I'm realizing that uh, I don't want to assume. As we take a look at prophetic picture, in seven different places between the book of Daniel and Revelation, it talks about a time period of 1260 years. That time period begins at 538 A.D. and finishes at 1798 A.D. That is the 1260-year prophetic time period in seven different places in the books of Daniel and Revelation that is mentioned that the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, would reign and dominate and rule and control men and would sit in the place of God showing himself that he is who? God. In 1798 was when the end of time began. Go back and read chapter 20 of great controversy this afternoon and you will find 
over and over the phrase 1798 being distinctly identified as the ending of the papal supremacy at that point. They continued as a church, but their political power and state governmental power was taken away until 1929 that the Lateran Treaty was signed by Mussolini of Italy, Roosevelt of the U.S., and Churchill of England to give 50 acres unto the Vatican, which they hold today as Vatican City. They have their own monetary funds. They have their own passports. They are their own country. Their political power was reinstated in 1929. The deadly wound began to be healed. Why am I bringing up this when we're talking about the everlasting gospel? Because until you identify the problem, the solution really doesn't make sense. And as we identify the event, the second coming could not be distinctly proclaimed until this time period, the time of the end, began. And that the papal supremacy's reign of terror ended in 1798. From that time period, we move on. And the word of God became flourishing in different languages and published as never before and broadcast among the world for the everlasting gospel to be presented. Now we come back to the special people. What was the purpose of the gospel? Revelation chapter 14 talks about a special people and what God's desire is. I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him, how many? A hundred and forty and four thousand. And what did these hundred and forty-four thousand have? They had their father's name written upon what? Their foreheads. The character of God was restored in them. So my question to you is, and then it goes on to give more descriptive terms and details and characteristics of this group, down to verse 5. Now we come to the special message, three messages, that actually prepares a people to be a part of this special group. To prepare them for the special event. Does that make sense? And God's ideal for His people is always higher than you and I can even imagine. But the request in the condition of salvation is the same for all throughout history. And that's what I want to present to you today. It tells us in Revelation chapter 14 verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having what? Everlasting gospel. gospel. It's a gospel of good news. A message that is eternal. It never dies, it never fades, it never becomes old, it never loses its power. Reminds me of a song. Never loses power. And so it says, having the everlasting gospel preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. There's no one to be exempt so what is the purpose of the gospel? In verse 7 it says, saying with a loud voice, do what? Fear God and give glory to Him. In simple terms, to fear God means to reverently believe what He has said is for your best. God is love. 
Every word is proclaimed with the motive and intent of your best interest from God. It may not feel like it at times. It may not seem like it by circumstances. It might not even appear by all appearances. But the only way you can experience it is not by what you see, but by what He says. Faith, without it, is it impossible to please God. Because faith is the very secret to lay hold of what God has said for you. You believe it because you believe His love for you. So this becomes the motive of winning back our hearts from the selfishness to trust ourselves that we are in charge of the shift that we trust Him, that we allow Him to be in charge. You say, Chris, that sounds very easy in theory. But what does that look like in practice? To give glory to God means to allow His character to become our character. For His love to be revealed through us. Now I'm going to share with you, I know as a human being, I have greatly failed on many occasions to allow His love to be revealed in me. I know he meant that for himself. And see, he just affirmed it by another amen. But you know what? It was for me. Do do you get it? It was for me. The validation that I need the power of the gospel to transform my life. Thank you, brother, for being on cue. I appreciate that. So the true peace that God has is when self is not why we live. We're not there to defend, protect, preserve, excuse, justify. Because we find that self is the very enemy against the cross of Christ. And so here we find the everlasting gospel is the power to transform But there is a distinct difference of this message because it says, for the hour of what? It's talking about a time period of which this message becomes even more urgent than what it ever has been in time past. There's an urgency because in time past, the everlasting gospel, it's everlasting because it's always been the gospel. God, from the time that Adam and Eve sinned, as soon as they sinned, there was a Savior. Jesus says, I will die for them. That's why they didn't die. Spirit so prophecy says, as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. Actually, before the foundation of the world, before this world was created, the plan of salvation was already planned. God, the Alpha and Omega, knows the, beginning, the end from the beginning. He had a solution. Should be another reason why we should trust Him more, right? And so, it reminds us of who He really is. The judgment is coming to where everyone's lives are going to be evaluated by what we've professed. And it's a friendly reminder to come back and it says, And worship Him that made heaven, the earth, the sea, and fountains of waters. It's a call to come back and worship our Creator. The one who made us 
has been the same one to give his life to redeem us. So, what is this everlasting gospel? Let's turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. You know, somebody says, oh, there's power in the gospel. What is that power? In the book of Romans chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of what? Now I've seen, and at times, have you ever been ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Now let's take a closer look at what that really means. What is the gospel of Christ? It says, the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's no respecter of persons. All inclusive for everyone. Verse 17 says, for therein is what? The righteousness of who? Brethren, every single day... Our tendency is to look at ourselves, on our achievements, on our performance, on our abilities, on our talents, on our accolades of who I am. But the purpose of the gospel is to put the glory of God where? Or the glory of man? Where the purpose of the gospel is to put the glory of man, where? None of us like to be kicked. None of us like to be belittled. None of us us like to be put down, overlooked, rejected, criticized, left out. Ignored. But yet the very purpose of the gospel is to lead us that we would be willing to do that voluntarily. This is the power of God, it says. It's a power that is so powerful that if we understand what that power is and tap into it by faith... Because it says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. How? From faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. There is something that when we look to ourselves, there is no good reason, no evidence, no explanation of why or how God should offer His righteousness to you and I. And yet that is the purpose of the gospel. The power of God is to offer us that which we don't have because we desperately need it. And not because we deserve it, but as that big G word says, grace, unmerited favor to you and I just because God loves us because that's who He is. So not based upon what you haven't done or should have done or could have done or didn't do or did do and should have Etc., etc., right? It's based upon what he has done to offer on our behalf, knowing full well that without him we can do how much? Nothing. While we were in sin, we were dead 
When we're alienated from God, dead in trespasses and sin, as the Bible says. Turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, what? But un- it's foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is what? So now we see the gospel is the power of God. And now it says the power of God is what? The preaching of the cross. So the Bible is revealing to us what God's power to change and transform us is. It's the power of the cross. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. What happened at the cross? There was something at the cross that transforms us, that empowers us, that speaks to us. At the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my soul finally rolled away. This is a friendly reminder for me today. Bible entreats us, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Turn your Bible to the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28. Let's take a closer look at the power of the cross. Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me is the invitation of Christ, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many of us have tried to labor that others would accept us, that we would be recognized, we would be honored, we would be achieve what we're desiring to obtain, that somebody would take notice or take note? Like, I'm, aren't I of value? Aren't I important? Didn't I do something that somebody can recognize? Self is constantly screaming out for attention. All the time. But there is one thing and one thing only that will silence that anxiety, that cry, that angst, that burden. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I was having a conversation earlier this week about the fundamental of the gospel. There's just one thing that God really is asking of all of us. And the principle is very simple. But the application just seems to be so trying at times in each one of our lives on different levels in different circumstances. Just one principle. I remember one, one gentleman many years ago, he said, kiss. Keep it simple, saints. <laughs> Keep it simple, saints. What is that one principle? I want you to turn to your Bible. We're going to come back and find out what that yoke is. And that burden that we find that is finally light. That his yoke is easy and burden is light. How do we experience that? In the book of John chapter 12, 
Jesus shares a simple parable to let us understand in one verse. In the second verse, he illuminates to make it more personal in its application. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 24. Verily, verily, in other words, pay attention, pay attention, what I'm saying to you. Except a corn of wheat fall from the ground and do what? Die. What happens to it? It's going to abide alone. How many of you like planting? Wow. We need to get agriculture more stimulated as a desire in this congregation. (laughs) We need to go back to our roots. When you take a seed and you keep it in a jar, you come back to that seed next year in that jar, how many seeds are you going to have? That one seed. And it's going to abide alone. When you keep to yourself and do whatever you think is good for you, in your sphere, in your life, how many people are benefited by that? And Jesus says, but if you go and put the seed in the ground, that seed is going to do what? Ah, but before it flourishes and grows, something takes place first. It has to take place first. The Bible says, it'll fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth how much fruit? So if the seed is planted, and the plant now dies, that seed dies, in order for life to come out, new life. Ooh. You hearing the life? The new life? There's a new life. That seed was once a seed, now it becomes a plant. And it flourishes and develops and grows until the maturity to where it produces more what? More fruit, more seeds, more harvest. That others can be benefited and it multiplies the opportunity of the impact in others' lives. The love of God is what He's trying to plant in our life. But in order for that love to be planted, self must come to die first. And until self dies and surrenders itself fully of control, there can be no new life. But if there's a new life, that flourishing of new life, that love of God is able to bring forth a new person, new creature, new character, new motives, new purposes, to where your focus is blessing and benefiting and honoring God and benefiting your fellow man. So that your life wears self in the focus. That's not the part. The only thing you do in examining self is to see what can be surrendered more to allow more of God's love in your life to reveal more of His character to impact more people, to bless more people, to serve more people. All your gifts and talents become focused on what you can obtain and learn and develop as talents and gifts 
and understanding of knowledge is for the very purpose to help and to serve and to minister to the needs of others. And it's not for your glory, it's not for you to be seen, it's not for accolades and awards and recognition of yourself, you. It's for God to be honored and saying, I want to allow God to be in charge of my life like I see that person surrendered to allow God's love to be in theirs. Do you see the difference? We are not the center of our lives any longer. That is the whole purpose of the everlasting gospel. Have we failed to learn that lesson, brethren? Yes, we have. And I'm the first to admit. But is God sending a message, a reminder to us this morning to come back to experience the everlasting gospel that He has called us to where self is fully surrendered, to where it's not I anymore but Christ? You know, Jesus shared with us something very deep as He continues in verse 25. He that loveth his life, what's going to happen to it? You're going to lose it. But he that hateth his life in this world shall what? Keep it unto everlasting life or life eternal. If any man serve me, let him do what? Very simple, right? If you surrender your life, you're like, well, what am I supposed to do now, Lord? Follow what he did. Follow the example. Follow the principles that he shared in his life. And where I am, there you may or shall be also. There shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father do what? So notice when we humble ourselves to surrender, who ends up honoring us? But it's not for our glory, it's for whose? And that becomes the very focus of the purpose of life. It's not about me anymore. Now I got another song in my head. You can talk about me. But I'll talk about you while I'm on my knees. So as we continue to understand more fully the gospel experience that God is inviting us in Philippians chapter 2, it gives us more definition and description of what that looks like. There's an entreaty that Paul makes unto the people at Philippi and to us today through the Holy Spirit. It says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that you do what? Be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now this is unity, not uniformity. Uniformity is the way I like it. I want everybody to agree and come in line with it. Unity is, I like the diversity of thoughts and perspectives. Let's see how everyone in their creativity that God has given may be able to participate to put something together to be honor and glory to Him. Not to ourselves, but to Him. And to truly be a blessing and benefit to others. And it goes on and shares, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Look what I've done. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. 
a strong admonition for us today. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So as we look not on our own things, but we see how we can serve and bless and benefit others now, that we are not living to our own selves, we're seeing how we can be a blessing in helping others. And it says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Now, as we go about God surrendering to God, and God abides in us, in his, through His Spirit, the works we do, we do not of our own, but He does the works. For it is God that both what? To will and to do of His good pleasure in you. So then we come to understand, what is this mindset that God is trying to establish in each one of us? And it talks about, in verse 6, it was the mind that Christ had, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Christ, who was God, became man, but still was God, dwelt in humanity, in human flesh, amongst us, and then he goes through and reveals to us something Then in his life, he never made a show of telling or expressing who he was. He simply, his life was dedicated for two purposes. To do the will of his Father, and that will was to reveal his Father's character in practical service and acts to humanity. For he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, the words I speak, they're not my own. The Father, He gives me that which I speak. The works I do, I do not of myself. It's the Father. He doeth the works in me. Everything of the life of Christ was one of transparency where it was not His will, but that of His Father. This is the mind that Christ is wanting to give to us as a gift in exchange for our carnal mind to give him, give us his divine mind. To replace selfishness, self-centeredness, and pride with self-denial, self-sacrifice. And a motive that would be for your good. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't something he was trying to take away to say, hey, look who I am. But verse 7 has been very strong for me. But he made of himself of what? He made of himself of no reputation. Now, this is one place where I, in my study, I found the 1828 Noah Webster's Dictionary contradicts what Bible and Spirit prophecy defines. Reputation. How many of you think reputation is referring to character? Okay. Well, so did Noah Webster. But in the divine inspiration of the Spirit of God, in the pen of inspiration... It defines it differently. It tells us that when Christ made of himself of no reputation, it wasn't referring to his character. 
Reputation is what people say, what they think, the comments behind, whatever. But character is who you are. They're two separate things. And it says, instead of protecting a reputation that he's the king of kings and lord of lords, he took the form of a what? Of a servant. So he took the opposite. He wasn't earnestly trying to show himself as king at this point. And it says, and was made in the likeness of men. He even took on humanity. So God humbled himself to take on humanity and revealed himself as a servant, not as a king, even though he was a king. You know, I've heard different things of pastors dressing themselves up like they're homeless and putting themselves on the front porch of their church and to see how their church members respond. You know, if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, Jesus said. Many times we honor those that dress nice, that are in positions of responsibility, that have education or wealth or some type of influence. Okay? But Jesus was never about those things. And neither should we be. If we were to follow his example. And that means a humbling of our own minds, our own mentality, our own thought process. It means we, don't, we need to stop thinking the way we've been thinking to receive the mind of Christ. And it goes on deeper and says, He made of himself of no reputation. Spirit prophecy says very plainly, Dealing with reputation. We may expect that false reports will circulate about us. But if we follow a straight course, if we remain indifferent to these things, others will also be indifferent. Let us leave to God the care of our reputation. Slander can be lived down by our manner of living. It is not lived down by words of indignation. Let our great anxiety do to be act in the fear of God and show by our conduct that these reports are false. In other words, let us be quiet and just live out the, Christ, the Christian life and let the reports be as they be. It says, no one can injure our character as much as we ourselves. By the way, I'm quoting from uh, Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 2. Page 548 and 549. So it separates reputation from character already. And it says, No one can injure our character as much as we ourselves. It is the weak trees and the tottering houses that need to be constantly propped. When we show ourselves so anxious to protect our reputation against attacks from the outside, we give the impression that it is not blameless before God and that it needs, therefore, to be continually bolstered up. Quote, unquote. Child Guidance, page 161, says, Mental ability and genius are not character, for these are often possessed by those who have the very opposite of a good character. Reputation is not character. Quote, unquote. Child Guidance, page 161. 
And then it goes through and shares a powerful statement. And this one comes from Ministry of Healing in the chapter Help in Daily Living or the book Lit, Help in Daily Living, page 25, 26. We cannot afford to let our spirits chafe over any real or supposed wrong done to ourselves. Self is the enemy we most need to fear. No form of vice has a more baleful effect upon the character than has human passion not under the control of the Holy Spirit. No other victory can be gained, can we gain, will be so precious as the victory gained over who? Self. In our marriages, we think, oh, if my wife would just change or if my husband would just change. But what if they don't change? Are you going to continue to use them as the excuse of why you do not grow in your Christian graces and behavior and conduct for what God has called you accountable to yourself and before God? What about one another of how we deal with one another? I don't want to be a slave to others' characteristics or bad habits. I don't want to use others as an excuse for why my bad behavior becomes trying to be justified. It's me, it's me. It's me, O oh Lord, that stands in the need of prayer. Continuing on, it says, We should not allow our feelings to be easily wounded. We are to live not to guard our feelings or our reputation but to save souls. As we become interested in the salvation of souls, we cease to mind the little differences that so often arise in our associations with one another. Whatever others may think or do to us, it need not disturb our oneness with Christ. Amen. The fellowship of the Spirit. What glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently this is acceptable or commendable with God. 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20. Two essential elements. Strength of character consists of two things. Power of will and the power of self-control. Power of the will and power of self-control. The real greatness of nobility of the man is measured by his powers to subdue his feelings, not by the power of his feelings to subdue him. The strongest man is he who, while sensitive to abuse, will yet restrain passion and forgive his enemies. Child Guidance 161. Quote, While slander may blacken the reputation... It cannot stain the character. Why am I going through these quotes? So you can understand and see how God defines the separation and difference between reputation and character. That is, okay, our character. It is in the keeping of God or in God's keeping. So long as we do not consent to sin, there is no power, whether human or satanic, that can bring a stain upon the soul. 
A man whose heart is stayed upon God is just the same in the hour of his most afflicting trials and most discouraging surroundings as when he was in prosperity, when the light and favor of God seemed to be upon him. His words, his motives, his actions may be misrepresented and falsified. But he does not mind it because he has greater interests at stake. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 32. We have greater things at stake. That is it to develop a character for eternity that no one else can destroy more than we ourselves. And no one else can restore more than we ourselves in cooperation with Christ. I want to make an appeal today. And in that appeal, I'm going to... No one can injure our character as much as we ourselves. Brethren, I want to make the appeal. How many of you are willing to consider... Out of all the excuses that personally you've been making, and I gotta say that I've been making, are you willing to put on the altar of sacrifice today? I want you to think about that as we listen to the song, Is Your All on the Altar?
as you yield him your body and soul. Who can tell all the love he will send from above and how happy our hearts will be made of the fellowship sweet we shall share at his feet when our all on the altar is laid is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid your heart does the spirit control you can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield him your body and soul is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid your heart does the spirit control you can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield him your body and soul as you yield him your body and soul as you yield him your body and so how many of you are ready today say yes lord i want to yield my reputation and put it on the altar i want to give my life back to you that i've been holding on to i want to give you full charge and permission to be in control because I've really allowed the things of this world to distract my time and attention from the one that loves me more than anyone else. That's the cry that you feel the small still voice appealing to your heart this morning. Would you come join us as we have prayer? sweetest gift that God could ever give us is the gift of his son but the sweetest experience in receiving that gift is full freedom full freedom and that freedom God wants us to leave here today and not be a slave to the sin that has kept us in bondage anymore to not be enslaved to the selfish heart that has deceived us so often trying to rationalize and justify 
everybody else, but not I, Lord. And today, he says, is me. Is me that stands in the need of prayer. Is there one more that the heart is being tugged by the grace of God that wants to come up and surrender self today and place all on the altar? I don't want one leaving here not without being free. But more importantly, Jesus has died so that not one has to leave here without being free. But until you make that choice of surrender, you will never find the peace that God has for your soul. Never. This is His condition, not mine. And I today want to fulfill that condition and say, here I am, Lord. Is there one more that wants to come to make that commitment? Will you join me? As we come and have prayer together, let us pray. All who are able, let us reverently kneel. Loving Heavenly Father, it is with freedom and joy that we say, Yes, Lord, take us as holy thine. Our messed up lives, our poor choices, our bad mistakes our bad habits, our bad behavior, comments, criticism, how our minds run to the the negative instead of looking at the positive, the reputations we have tried to defend and protect and preserve when really self is the very one that needs to die. Today, Lord, we say yes. We want to lay all on the altar to leave and withhold nothing back. So whatever you've convicted upon the hearts of your people today through the Holy Spirit, help them to be honest with themselves and honest with you. That the freedom that they would experience would truly be that which you desire us to have. And thank you, Father, that as we surrender, you said a new heart will I give you. And a right spirit will I put within you. And I will cause you to walk on my statutes and teach you my judgments. Father, you have said you will write your law upon the tables of our minds, our hearts. And that you will order our steps according to your word. Because you have committed yourself and you are faithful who has promised. And because, Lord, you said that if we seek you for our personal development each and every day, looking to your righteousness and your promises to be fulfilled in our life, that if we do this, we will never fall. And it is your joy in the righteousness of Christ to present us faultless before your presence with exceeding joy. Lord, I pray if there are hearts here that have been hardened by the sinfulness of sin, And are struggling to say yes to you today. That you would please do whatever it takes to let them not go. Without your pleading and entreaty and mercy to be extended. To lead them to repentance, Father. I thank you because you wish that none, not one of any of us should be missing out and lost on the 
freedom and true peace you have. I want to thank you that that which we have committed unto you today, you were able to keep us and keep that which we have committed to the day of Jesus Christ soon appearing. Thank you for being a faithful God. We ask these things in the worthy name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Amen.